Whoa. Good morning, good afternoon, good night. This is Connor Hallway of the Golden Hours Podcast, and hey, this is a GDP Minute. And I'm not alone in the studio today. I'm with Sarah, and Sarah's the young journalistic phenom from Northeastern, and she's recording the GDP Minute today, so thank you, Sarah. Additionally, we just had Isaac Feldberg from the Boston Globe and Fortune Magazine. He's a freelance writer, and I went to high school with Isaac, and he came up talking about some movies, man. 2019 is almost over, and he gave us a rundown of some of his favorite shows, including Succession. He talked about Euphoria a little bit, and he also talked about how Hollywood is shifting into making these massive franchise movies. And he also discussed what Apple Plus is. It's Apple's new streaming service and kind of what's on the horizon for Disney Plus and a little bit about Facebook Watch. So if the world of streaming and entertainment fascinates you, this is a great, great episode. And he also talked about having integrity as a film critic and how and what legitimizes his stance and what allows him to be a film critic and call himself a film critic. Really interesting stuff. I had a great time and uh, I hope everyone enjoys it. That is a GP Minute. Golden Deer Productions. Golden Deer. Oh, oh, wait, was that not it? Hey, enter, just, you forgot to enter. Hey, everybody. Before we start, I want to say, hey, this is Connor Holloway of the Golden Hours Podcast. And if you, by chance, get any sort of value from this episode, whether you laugh, you cry, you're thoroughly entertained, or you learn something, all we ask is that you just share it with a friend. That's it. You don't, and if you don't have friends, you shouldn't be here. You should be listening to the podcast. I was going to say, you should probably go. Make some <laughs> Additionally, let's address the two elephants in the room before I introduce our guest. Big Fresh, let's start with you. Yo, Big Fresh checking in for another episode. Hi, I'm Sarah. I'm new. <laughs> Sarah, welcome. Sarah's a young journalistic phenom. And we have a journalistic expert to our right. So I said, hey, man, this would probably be a good episode for you to start on. And Sarah is currently attending Northeastern. And Sarah, I don't want to misquote, but you're a sophomore? Yeah. Okay, cool. And did you already declare your major? Yes, I am a journalism major. Okay, so this is like a perfect episode because that's what you did, right? Yeah, yeah. I was a journalism major, media and screen studies minor. Fire. So listen, my guest tonight is... An ex co co student co classmate, an ex classmate <laughs> of mine, Isaac Feldberg, and me and Isaac have not seen each other since high school. But since high school, Isaac, I've been seeing a lot of his articles pop up online, and I've been totally fascinated by a lot of the stuff you've been covering, man. So thank you for coming. Thank you, man. Corporate, yeah. LS, <laughs> very official. Grad stream, big things. Do you want to uh, just give a quick synopsis of who you are and what you do? Sure. Uh, my name is Isaac Feldberg. I am a freelance journalist in the Boston area currently. I write for the Boston Globe. I write for Fortune Magazine. I interned at Entertainment Weekly in LA two summers ago. Yeah. What, what was that like? Do you love it? Oh, that was crazy. I mean, LA is just such a playground. It's such a cool place to be for someone who's interested in film. The, where, where were you staying in the city? I was bouncing all over. I had a crazy summer, but I was uh, first ever by UCLA and then I was out by Culver City. Do you know LA? Yeah, I just I was out there like three weeks ago. I stayed in Culver City. I loved it. Culver City is great because it's like an actual city. I mean, I feel like LA... It's like a Cambridge to Boston kind of. Perfect metaphor because, I mean, LA is just like 
a bunch of cities connected by freeways more than it is one one place. And I, I do not know how people could maneuver there full time if they did not have a car. <laughs> yeah. Dude, I mean, I, like... I didn't when I was out there and it was kind of a trek. I was just doing the, you know, those electric scooters that they tried to bring in the, the Cambridge. The Lime scooters? The Lime and the Bird. I was riding those all <laughs> over the city and Any it tragic crazy. accidents? Luckily, no. I mean, I probably wouldn't be here if there had been. Those things do not give you much protection. <laughs> At all, dude. No. But, yeah, I, and I wouldn't do that again. I would do L.A. much smarter if I did it in the future. But while I was there, I mean, being in Entertainment Weekly, I grew up reading that magazine. It was a very cool experience. Were you staying off of Venice Boulevard close at all when you were in Culver? Uh, not that close to Venice Boulevard, but I did spend some time around there. It's a really cool stretch. Well, Sony Studios like right there. Yeah, and yeah. So, and so I, I, I don't know exactly what your duties were with Entertainment Weekly, but like, did they have you bounced around to a bunch of different movie sets, or what were you specifically doing? I was doing a lot of kind of digital first news, so I was really in their office, which is on Wilshire Boulevard. Okay. Uh, and you know, occasionally I would go out do screenings on like the the studio lots. I did a few interviews, which were usually more around the main hotels in LA. Uh, but primarily, I was just around the office, kind of helping them put together the physical magazine. Because I mean, when I did this internship, they were a weekly entertainment weekly. They've since kind of shifted to be a monthly with uh, some digital special sections that go out weekly. But uh, Why is that? Why do they shift to less frequent? Well, I mean, you could get into a whole conversation about the challenges facing journalism as a profession right now. But the biggest thing is just that print uh, as a medium uh, is it's not it, it's it's heading that way. It's just not that viable right now because there hasn't been a way to really get back the ground that journalistic publications seeded when the Internet came on the scene. Mm -hmm. Uh Previously to that, you could subscribe for your news and you, you paid for it. It was something that you had to really have as an exchange to get access to information about the world you were living in. But the internet kind of made that free. And a lot of publications made the mistake of giving away what they'd previously been charging for. And you can't really kind of, you know, put that back in the bottle. When you were at Entertainment Weekly, was there any discussion about their employees learning how to create their own content via um, popular digital platforms like Facebook. You mean like social media? Yeah, kind just of. like would they teach you how to make your own podcast or write your own blog or set up your own website? No, I mean, when I was with Entertainment Weekly, I was in more of an intern capacity, so I was helping, yeah. helping them with everything that they were already working on. Uh, there's certainly a push at uh, publications like Entertainment Weekly that get some of their staffers, the people who actually kind of have the title cards there to, to be on podcasts, to launch their own, to kind of branch into multimedia. It, one of the real things I feel like I've learned through coming up at Northeastern in the journalism program there, being at the Globe, spending some time at Entertainment Weekly, it's just that it's very important for journalists right now, people in really any profession, but especially ones that involve the written word, to be well-rounded, you know, to be able to work in video, work in audio, and to... You take photo now, right? I do. I do take photos. What are you shooting on? Um, I'm shooting on a Nikon. Nikon what? A D2300. Okay. What are we doing for lenses? Uh, yeah, you're getting into the upper end of my technical okay. skill there. 
I'm kind of a little bit new to it, but enjoying kind of playing around. I've shot a couple of stories for that I've worked on for the Globe, but uh, primarily the Globe actually has its own photo department still. So you input a photo request, photographers come out with these massive flashy cameras. It's very impressive, uh, but it's something I'm really trying to learn more about. That seems somewhat impractical, though. If they like every time you have a story, you have to call a photographer and say, "Hey, can you take a picture of this?" Why couldn't you just like pull out your iPhone and say, "Okay, cool, here's the story." Well, I mean, photographers make an entire living working at newspapers by themselves. So, if and in some publications that isn't the case, but at a publication like the Globe, the photo department is still so dedicated that if reporters were going out and shooting their own photos and just doing all that work, it would render their work obsolete and photographers are held to a pretty high standard at the globe there's really that kind of um, philosophy of photography that you can tell an entire story in one photograph absolutely but you know what i'm saying though like oh no I, I completely do it's uh it's another one of those questions of how you're diverting resources and how you're allocating resources um i'm in awe of the globe photographers i could never really do what they do um but it is a, a question, especially because camera, um, like iPhone camera technology has just become so much more capable. And I mean, can, the new camera is ridiculous. Yeah. I, I don't have the newest, uh, the newest phone, but I'm considering getting it just because of the photo capacities that three it would allow. Cameras. Yeah. Two, two selfie cameras? Just one, I think. And, but it's three cameras, three right? Back, yeah. 4K. Probably. And I, and I think it shoots video at 120 frames a second. And you can slow or it all the way down. At 4K, I think oh, 120. Yeah. Wow. Which is like, in technical terms, like the same capacity as probably what some of the globe photographers are shooting on anyway, which is wild. Yeah. A Apple's taking over the world, man. Yeah, no, they really are. I mean, they're also, uh, just speaking of that in terms of the entertainment landscape. I, I was going to say, do they have a streaming service? They yet? do. They do. They just launched a streaming service earlier this month, like an Apple TV Plus uh, platform. Um, luckily, they didn't pull a U2 and kind of download all of the episodes onto our phones automatically and just break oh, everyone's I forgot storage. About that, yeah. Do you remember that? I think that we were in high school when they did that. What What was the name of the album? Songs of Innocence. Yeah, so what Isaac is referencing is like U2 pretty much hacked the mainframe and they like everyone had U2 albums on their phone because they worked out some deal with Apple that said, okay, everyone's going to have access to this automatically, right? Yeah, and everyone fucking hated it <laughs> because it's, it's YouTube. It's that genius <laughs> marketing, though. It's like guerrilla marketing. Yeah. No, it really... Oh, can I swear on this? Yeah, that's fine, dude. Okay, cool. Should have asked. Fuck, but, shit. I, I mean, if I couldn't, at least it was in service of describing YouTube, Absolutely. which I'm happy about. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, Apple's really moving into the streaming game. Everyone's moving into the streaming game, but it got like Jennifer Aniston, Reese Witherspoon uh, to lead its its main show, which was actually about morning news um, talk shows. Uh, what is that called? It's called The Morning Show, creatively. Do you, th uh, do you think it does service to morning news and journalism? Uh, no, not really. I, well, I think it's more of a drama set in that environment so it's you know it's soapy all the characters have hidden alliances all of them have these ties that are binding them together sabotage all that yeah you know well it, it, it is kind of I, I don't know if you ever watched the newsroom which was on hbo but um there's this kind of history of tv shows that take a look at uh behind the scenes of newsrooms and uh kind of where information is disseminated disseminated to the public that 
really plays up the drama of that and plays up the people who are kind of behind all of those stories and how their personal loyalties and alliances who could be driving that, those. You know? Who directed The Morning Show? No, um, The Newsroom. The Newsroom was Aaron Sorkin's series. Um, he's wow, the okay. screenwriter who did The Social Network yeah, and all of that. Yeah, he's crazy. That's Sorkin, man. Yeah, he's great. And so you're saying that you think the the new Reese Witherspoon Jennifer Aniston series is a little watered down, or? Well, I, I'm not sure. I'd say watered down. I think that Apple is trying to move into doing prestige TV programming, and it it's a vertical that it really doesn't know anything about. I mean, Apple isn't a content creator usually. It's a it's a tech giant, and so I feel like a lot of the shows in its threshold class. It also has this super expensive dystopian show called C with Jason Momoa from Game of Thrones in it that uh, is also Aquaman also Aquaman very good um, just it, it's this world where no one can see and that's the basic premise of it. it's you know another one of those dystopian things a lot of the it's Apple post-apocalyptic or yeah exactly okay um, a lot of the Apple TV shows kind of point to this company that is trying to enter that space because it wants to you know, control the content that's there as well as the delivery vehicle for it. Um, but they maybe just don't have it quite figured out yet how to make really good shows. Don't you think there's a there's usually a lapse of two or three years with a lot of these streaming platforms anyway, though? Yeah, like, absolutely. Like they'll probably just come into their own after three years, four years. Well, that's the question because it, it really is... is this interesting landscape where people have been comparing Apple TV Plus to Netflix to Disney Plus. But what Apple TV Plus and Disney Plus have in common is they have virtually unlimited money to throw at this until it works. So and resources yeah. and brand. Yeah, I mean, they really can afford to do this for as long as they want until they figure it out. So I'm, I'm very hopeful that those will eventually result in some compelling TV shows. Well, Facebook was doing streaming for a little bit, correct? They were. Facebook Watch, I think, was the name of it. And did it die out? I don't think it's died out. I haven't really heard much about it. Um, I know that Jessica Biel is in their latest, which is cool. have to watch that. Yeah, it's Limetown, I think, is the name of it. It's like a, a procedural cop mystery thing. Um, I clearly haven't seen it from how I'm describing it. Well, there's a there was a pretty prevalent youtuber named jimmy tatro are you familiar with him i'm not tell me about him well he's a are, do you know tatro he's like vine and youtube right no he was like one of the earliest youtube sketch creators and i used to totally totally be inspired by a lot of the stuff he was wasn't doing. he in the, um, the american vandal show that was him okay yeah, the yeah, first yeah. one like yeah. who drew the dicks yeah, yeah so he had a series that was went big on youtube called the real bros of simi valley and then I think, I don't want to misquote this, but I think there was some sort of bidding war for the third season of it, or the second season, and Facebook Watch, it was the first time they'd actually taken the business of a prevalent YouTube creator and brought mm -hmm. it onto their platform. Yeah. But I, I wonder if what you're talking about with Apple and Disney is kind of the same space that Facebook's in right now, where they haven't ever really been the creators, they've just been the curators. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that you've got companies that, really want to be in a creative industry because um, there there's a certain prestige to that to be able to win awards to be able to get people talking about an Apple TV show or um, a Facebook TV show I'm skewing away from saying that about Disney because I feel like Disney's a little bit different given Disney's its history titan, man. 
Yeah, I mean, Disney, when the profits from Fox titles that it has acquired after acquiring 20th Century Fox, when that's accounted in, Disney will account for more than 50% of the global box office this year, <laughs> which is insane. It's a, it, it is a monopoly just by definition of the word. Well, they've just done such a great job developing their franchises. They have. They have. I mean... Uh, they really hit upon this winning formula with the live action remakes of their classic movies. The what was your live- favorite? Oh, I, I of the remakes of the remakes. The only one I actually liked was when Kenneth Branagh did a Cinderella update. I think it was in 2015. It had Lily James uh, in it from Baby Driver, and okay. uh, uh, and that was just a very kind of classic take on that story but it was very beautifully directed and put together i really like that actress and they did a great job of that i didn't you weren't feeling it no how about you did you like beauty and the beast well well, i love uh emma watson yeah yeah i i I felt like the music of it didn't quite work for me when they were like bursting into song it didn't feel (laughs) you weren't feeling quite right i mean it's a tricky proposition to kind of make live action stuff that really was expressive in animation decades ago i mean you saw that kind of with the lion king i mean it made over a billion dollars it's i think the second highest grossing movie of the year behind endgame um but you weren't feeling it well the the issue i have with a lot of those updates is that the part of the kind of the appeal of the lion king the original was like shakespeare with lions and shakespeare in the animal kingdom so because of that, you had to have animals delivering really human emotions and human kind of dramas and plots. And the animals, like their faces, like photorealism was not a goal of the original Lion King. Like they well, didn't, didn't have the technology back then anyway. I'm not sure that they would have used it, the original people who made the movie, even if they did though. Because I mean, the issue that I have with a new version of the Lion King was that they look too much like lions so you don't believe it when they're talking with human voices and going through human power struggles but how much of that could be you desperate on nostalgia for some of the greatest movies of what we had growing up you know like it will never really do the service like i love 101 dalmatians i did not love the remake as much as i love the animation because you have such good memories of watching it growing up i think that's definitely a part of it i mean i think nostalgia is the vehicle primarily driving these movies into production like the feeling that people want to relive what they grew up with totally sells it 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 does it sells really powerfully with disney stuff specifically because it's linked to childhood and i think that while it's great that a new generation of kids will get to see these movies they just feel a little bit emptier to me without the kind of the hand-drawn animation and the the emotion of that. So there's feels there feels like something cold and calculated to me about the photorealism of it seems the a little Lion more King. Hollywood to you. Yeah, a little bit more kind of industry. For instance, do you think the new Terminator will be like very calculated and it will have less of the original appeal? Well, you think it's just a play on money? The new Terminator, I thought, was interesting because that really bombed when it opened. It opened earlier this month, I believe, I think the first weekend of November. Um, people really rejected that movie, which was um, it was called Terminator Dark Fate, and it brought James Cameron, the director who did the, uh, the original the Terminator. Uh, he, he, um, yeah, he, he's incredible, and he was brought back on to produce this entry 
Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger was back in it. Linda Hamilton, mm-hmm. who was the original Sarah Connor, was back in it. And no one really cared. No one went to go see it. It lost probably around $75 million for Skydance, the studio that put it out, when you put together the budget and the marketing versus what it actually returned. Um, and I, I really think it just speaks to the fact that these franchises, people are nostalgic for certain franchises more than others. Um, and there is a point of diminishing returns if you continually reboot something. I think there were there were three other Terminator movies after yeah, the first the one and T2. Um, and each of them was worse than the last in terms of how they actually played. And I feel like audiences got tired and they were like, do I really need another Terminator reboot? Like Arnold Schwarzenegger isn't as jacked as he once was. <laughs> but when I was out in LA, the marketing play on it was crazy. It was everywhere you went with the yeah. Terminator movie. Have you guys seen um, Tropic Thunder? Yeah. yeah. You, you know that the bit in Tropic Thunder where it's like, Scorcher, one. Scorcher yeah. too. It's, it's like going all um, over Ben Stiller's like old movies. Yeah, it's like Scorcher, Frozen Earth, and it and then his relationship with Matthew McConaughey is just how his career is tanking. Just because yeah. they keep trying to reboot the same movie. Yeah, no, I mean, and I think uh, Twenty Two Jump Street played on that as well at, when the, they, end. at the end when they had the, all of their sequels that are on yeah, the was moon it, and what underwater. Were they like, they're like, we're going to law school. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, and it just got more and more ridiculous because that's sometimes what Hollywood does. There's some truth in that because it, you know, it costs a tremendous amount of money to make a movie. It is always a financial investment, and it is way typically, or at least the traditional thinking goes, safer to bet on something that's a pre-existing property that people know. So you don't have to sell them on an original idea, then get them out to the theater. You kind of can shortcut a step if you've got a franchise that has already made money before. So with that being said, this year, what were your favorite standalone non-franchise movies? Uh, non-franchise movies? Um, I, well, I mean, there's this increasing divide between like the blockbuster Hollywood movies. Some of them are non-franchise, some of them are franchise, and then there's like indie movies that are smaller. Um, I mean like in the realm of like a Moonlight. A Moonlight? Um, Like that type of realm of movie, or like a Green Book. Okay. Um, Like any movie with Mahershala Ali in it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, those, um, I mean, he's tremendous. And in, in terms of that, I think this has actually been a really strong year for those smaller movies. Um, especially foreign movies. I mean, the the farewell and Parasite. I'm not sure if you've seen either of those two yet. I love Parasite. I was about to ask you about that, but yeah. that was like one of the movies. Like, I don't really watch a lot of foreign films, but it's like a Korean uh, drama, or mm-hmm. I don't know what yeah, you call well, it. Yeah. What, what would you call that movie? It's yeah, like it was every like it's like genre. yeah, it really has um, a little bit of everything. But I thought that one was like really, really saw good. it in theaters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's been. I mean, Parasite is the the highest grossing um, non-English movie in, in America of the year so far. It's made, I believe, last time I checked, over $12 million, which is... Against what budget? Uh, against, I believe it was like a $5 million budget. And that's just domestic returns in the U.S. Um, it is made just... I think I think it has I think crossed at least the thirty five million I want to say forty million dollar mark globally. Whoa! It is a huge hit, um, and kind of points to what I'm seeing a lot this year, which is that people are more um, 
willing to go out to the movies for an original idea, even with subtitles, which used to, according to Hollywood logic, just be the kiss of death for a movie if it had subtitles and wasn't in English. American audiences weren't thought to really reward movies that weren't in English. How did they market that domestically? Um, how, how do marketers say, hey, come watch this Korean movie, you won't understand a thing? Honestly, for me, it was like word of mouth. Literally mm-hmm. everyone I've like who are like like movie buffs in my life, they were always like, You're, you gotta watch Parasite. Yeah. Why did you go see it? You just... Well, Parasite um, had this really splashy debut at film festivals earlier in the year. And so there's a lot of positive word of mouth about it coming out of those festivals, which is where studios will send a movie if they want to build buzz, get it in front of people who work in the industry. Yeah, like, and uh, I saw it at New York Film Festival uh, in late October. Uh, Well, actually early October. I'm getting my months skewed, but... um, Parasite had a really strong social media campaign okay. by, by a distributor called Neon, which is kind of in the same realm as A24, which mm-hmm. did Moonlight in terms of distributing smaller movies to mid-budget movies um, and focusing specifically on things that are either trendy in terms of their subject matter or kind of courting a younger audience in terms of some of the people who are in the movies. What type of young people were they marketing towards? Young for, intellects for, for Parasite. Yeah, um, I think they're marketing. It, it's hard, but right because you don't really know which demographic is going to come out to the movie until you actually get audience scores back. But I think primarily for movies like that, um, like Parasite, it's marketed towards young people who are interested in a diversity of voices and the diversity of stories. Um, young people who care young about intellects. movies. Well, I'm not sure if you if intellects is the right term for it because that kind of seems a little like it's making it a little bit elitist. I think that the appeal of Parasite and how much it's made so far points to the fact that it's resonating across this wide swath of audience of audiences beyond the people who will usually go see those yeah. small movies. Well, I'm generalizing, but from what I'm gathering from you two is that the film has somewhat of a complex plot. In correct. Sure. Yeah. I I mean it's um it is a story about um socioeconomic inequality essentially. It's and it's a really funny, dark, um sometimes frightening movie about these two families kind of in an upstairs downstairs situation where one of them is very privileged, very wealthy. One of them has no money, lives in poverty. And it essentially explores what happens when the family that's in poverty um manages to infiltrate this uh, house owned by the wealthier family, uh, at essentially um, replacing their servants. Cool. So for you, because you're... So at a certain point, I don't know if I had told you this, but I actually made a film, which won some big film festivals. Pretty wild. That's very cool. Thank you. Straight off my shoulder. <laughs> but... Do you want to Wait. talk about your film at all? No, 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 no. It's a, it's a segue. My question is, you you frequently, as a, a film critic, you're constantly dissecting film. You're mm. constantly looking at it like it's an essay. Do you ever just, are you ever able to just chill and put your feet up and just watch a movie? Yeah. I mean, or are you always all, like, all Ooh, I don't know if I like that so much. Well, I, I think when I'm writing about movies, I'm writing about my response to them. 
and there's some movies that are kind of built as crowd pleasers and i think that really every movie that's made is worth study even those movies because they always um you know contain certain choices made by the directors and the actors and the screenwriters um and i just that's kind of what i enjoy doing i really enjoy looking at movies and talking about them just because i love them i think they're interesting i think so there's the so answer, many the answer is no so you it is well, always a deeper meaning i think that when someone makes a movie and spends a lot of money on it uh even if the movie is the newest marvel thing uh there has been some sort of logic employed and you know when there isn't that logic or when it just feels completely empty that's worth noting as well um give me one where you were just like dude what was that jeez oh, this has actually been a pretty great year in terms of there not being that many movies that i feel like are um completely empty well i i, I do research probably yes but i i saw some of your rotten tomatoes reviews you gave, oh God. you gave someone a scalding one i got to i got to pull it up it depends when it's from because you know even before Northeastern. I think when I was in high school with you, I was writing for a cycle. We got this covered. Oh no way! Mm-hmm. Okay. And and I was writing stuff on Rotten Tomatoes back then. And I think my oh my Bright view... the Will Smith movie. Ah uh, yeah, really, you were not feeling that. I... He said ultimately, Bright simply lacks the screenwriting smarts to capitalize on the social commentary in its setup that it so nakedly attempt, attempts to harness. Bright. That's a that's Whoa. a no, well. That's a deep cut. I mean, Bright was. Was that 2015, 2016? That was when Netflix started making movies. It was a while ago, and it, I, I think it was the, pretty recent, though. Right? It may have been 2017. Yeah. I wouldn't park it as recent, more recently than that. You tucked in the back of your mind, huh? You don't, you don't ever want to think about that one again. Well, Bright, Bright was one of these really frustrating movies where it, it was like this fan. Had, have you seen Bright? I've seen the the advertising for it with Will Smith, and there's like an orc who's a cop. Yeah, it, it's this world where there was this kind of Lord of the Ringsy conflict centuries prior between magical creatures like orcs and fairies and then people. And the movie kind of zips words to modern day where everyone's living in this society with all of these uneasy tensions between species. So it's a, it's a weird kind of metaphor for just racial inequality, but also socioeconomic class struggle. And they kind of throw this fantasy thing into it and it's not an inherently uninteresting idea but from what i remember of the movie and again this was a while ago um there was like a scene where there's like a fairy who's um kind of like battering on like one of those fly swatter lamps um and will smith comes out and hits it with the broom and says fairy lives don't matter and and then <laughs> and then goes to his cop car and then goes out on his adventure and <laughs> it just rides into the distance. Uh, yeah. And, and that's like the opening of the movie. I think they put that in the trailer too. So they were going for something with it. I just don't really know what they're trying to say with that, whether the, the fairy is a metaphor for, you know, oppressed classes and Will Smith as the cop is like the oppressor. And it's like kind of having that message. But then it's also kind of a weird line that's played for laughs. It just kind of felt like something that was trading on, socio-political you thought relevance. it was a little cringy i thought it was a little um glib a, l a little bit like it was 
it, it was trafficking in that language without any real consciousness of what I was saying. Do you ever worry about giving scalding reviews and then seeing one of the people you've given reviews about in public? Because I have a problem specifically, essentially a podcast is media. We try to be as authentic as possible, mm -hmm. but I'm like very political. I'll never say anything bad about anybody on the show. Mm -hmm. As a critic, you have to be, so, you have to be, share your perspective openly. Are you ever worried like, yo, Will Smith's going to pull up on you and say, yo, bro, I wasn't really feeling that review on Bright Dog. I mean, I'm sure he wasn't. I, if he read it, which I doubt he did. If he I mean, did, shouts to you. I, well, it's like, you know, Will Smith is an incredibly talented actor with a platform. I think he has bigger fish to fry, honestly, than a few negative reviews on a movie. Um, well, in terms of that, I try to only write, and I've gotten much better at this since I started. I try to only write reviews that um, speak to you know what what I feel looking at a film objectively in terms of its value, what I liked about it, what I didn't like about it. Um, there are some critics who kind of get a little bit more personal than that and trash a director, trash everything they've done, trash their mother. It's like, and that's kind of not the style of writing that I like to do. Um, I really do love movies. I never go into a movie hoping that it's bad. Um, and so because of that, I feel like I only turn in copy, only turn in articles that I would stand by if I was talking to the people who are either quoted in them or in reviews who the, who the article is about. When you write, what type of value are you attempting to produce for people? When I write reviews or when I write When you write journalism? reviews, interviews, like what, what do you get from it personally? I think besides it being your career obviously <laughs> well you know you know the satisfaction i get out of writing about popular culture writing about film and tv and music is that i think i think popular culture says a lot about the country creating it and about the people consuming it what what's popular what's not um what becomes a beloved film what doesn't land uh i, I think that pop culture is just such an interesting way to to look at what's happening under the surface of a society. And I think that that's a reason we will always go to the movies. We will always listen to new music because it, you know, it tells us something about each other. It gives us something to connect with and to, uh, it helps us connect with each other. It's an amazing communication tool. Um, and kind of writing about that, I, I just feel like will always be something that people are interested in. I feel like people, I mean, you could make a point about reviews maybe being less and less essential. Um, now that there are like, there are more and more of them and everyone can openly share their own opinions about a movie. Um, but I think, you know, valuable critique about art that is thought out, that is studied, that is based in something. Uh, I think people will always be interested in that because there's so much content out there and it's helpful to have a guide to know what to consume. So, so I, I want to make sure I ask this so it's not offensive, but what, <laughs> what, what legitimizes your critique as opposed to somebody else's? Like what makes you actually able to be a film critic as opposed to me saying, yo, that movie was trash or yo. I think if, if you wrote a review about a film it would be as valuable as something I had to say. I mean, I can only speak from my perspective as someone. Mind just bring this a little bit. Closer. No, sorry. All good. I I can really only write from my perspective. I can write from 
my understanding of film as a medium from as music as a medium uh i can write from my understanding of politics of social life and society uh and i try to weave that together in a compelling way that is fun for an audience to read and maybe tells them something or helps them frame something to themselves that they couldn't quite put their finger on before but I in no way think that I have the most valuable voice in that conversation. And one of the things I think is increasingly happening with uh, entertainment journalism is that there are more voices coming in. There are so many more people who are gaining visibility via blogs that they they promote via social media through podcasts like this. And I think it's a great thing because I think that for too long there's been this very limited kind of elitist flavor to film criticism especially where it's you know just like a group of white guys uh in a room discussing the movies that they feel best represent the form and it's all very like um it's all very kind of cordoned off and it is all very um exclusionary i get it so i had a a writer up here later in the summer his name's dave wedge and he was actually the, the lead beat reporter for the Herald. And, okay. he, and he covered the Boston Marathon bombings. He was the lead reporter for it. And so from his experience, because he was kind of the guy that was there for everything, he was there for the bombings, he was there for the whole chase and everything, he was able to write the book Boston Strong, mm. which, was okay. then, which was then later adapted into Patriot's Day. Mm-hmm. Would that be something, obviously not given the terrible circumstance but would you like to shift into that eventually you know more formal writing or possibly adapting your own screenplays uh yeah i'm i mean i am very passionate about film as a medium i don't know whether i would be able to do that i don't know if i have the talent for it um i mean i am i'm i am working on screenplays i mean i'm a freelance writer now i'm not full-time employed by the globe fortune or anyone else um which comes with its own kind of perils and difficulties. Well, what it does is it gives you more freedom to pursue your own stuff. Um, and I'm fascinated by film. I would love to be involved in that industry in a more real way. Um, it's one of these these things about you know being in your early twenties, early twenties, mid twenties. Where where I'm twenty four. How old are you now? You're twenty three. Um, when I, I when was like we, birthday? September. Yeah. Uh, oh, so you were like old for our grade. I was a little bit, but and were you young for our grade? No, no, you... my, my birthday's in a month. Okay, happy early birthday. We'll go out. Yeah, we'll go watch some movies. Uh, I'll be great. I'll be great. It'll be a good time to do it into the year. I think Uncut Gems will be out, so we could go see Adam Sandler. Whoa! Oh wait! Oh, he's got a new movie coming out. Yeah, With who? Really great. Um, it's really just the Adam Sandler show. He's playing nice. this um this jeweler who's in this race against time to try to close on this massive score that he's putting together he's like this um incredibly <laughs> did he write it he didn't he didn't it's directed by the safety brothers who oh, are actually whoa. Um, purple yeah well he, he um he has this dramatic role in it i mean I'm, i know adam sandler's done so many netflix movies where well, he i just, love like, punch drunk love punch drunk love punch drunk love i can't speak uh clearly well is... you're actually you've been pretty eloquent this entire time man oh thank you For just sure. not describing adam sandler titles but the I love that movie too, and I think he's an incredible dramatic actor when he chooses to be. Um, I think it's a what stroke. Click. 
Well, I think it's a stroke of genius. He's convinced Netflix that he can only make movies along the Amalfi Coast right now. Like, he just oh, yeah. needs to be there. He needs to have sandals. He needs to um, have $100 million in his bank account and a mojito in his hand. Is that where they shot the do-over? Uh, I actually don't know where they shot the do-over. I know, like, just go with it. Um, we mur- the producer for the do-over up here. He said it was, like, a sick time producing it. Oh, I'm sure. He actually just filmed something on the Cape as well um, called Hubie, Hubie Halloween, something like that. Sounds like an Adam Sandler movie, man. <laughs> he's, Hubie Halloween. He's got a lot of... He's got a lot of that, but Uncut Gems is a completely different kind of role for him. It's a dramatic role, um, and he's very good in it. He's just this very skeezy, conniving guy who is determined to move this rare diamond uh, that he is just like, um, he's trying to sell off, and he has these gangsters after him, and he's just um, really kind of up against the wall. But that's a really great movie that I would recommend seeing since we were talking about this earlier yeah hey you two have any questions sarah what advice would you give to if i because i'm like five years ago you i'm sophomore journalism major at northeastern what advice would you give to me she looks like she's desperate for some advice (laughs) i think she's gonna be just fine i think she'll be great you know i think internships like you're doing here uh are a tremendous thing you get to kind of be involved at the ground level see how something comes together i would recommend um figuring out what beat you're actually most interested in writing about at northeastern you'll have a lot of opportunities um at whatever college you're at or even if you're younger than that or in high school there are different places that in journalism right now are so open to people who are uh, trying to get in, trying to write stories, trying to share perspectives, uh, figure out what you're interested in actually talking about or writing about. And when you have that or have an idea of something you'd like to try to figure out if it is that thing, uh, just do it as much as you can uh, and you'll, you'll figure it out. That's about all I got. Sounds great. To answer your question? Yeah, thank you. Big yeah, fresh, you're welcome. Big Freshy. Um, Watch just, out. <laughs> big Fresh got some haymakers for no, questions. Heads just, up, heads up. This one's just my own curiosity. But um, going, jumping back to the movies, do you review or are you a fan of any like horror movies? Yeah, yeah, I love horror um, movies. What did you think of Midsummer? Did you like that one? I did. I yeah. did. I, I think uh, Midsummer is a really... Uh, kind of intense watch of a movie it's this um the second film by this director named ari aster his last one was hereditary last year i don't know see i really liked hereditary but Mm -hmm. midsummer i don't know at the end i was just like left feeling a little like empty and uneasy and like yeah all sorts of feelings hereditary is such a gut emotional punch of a movie um in terms of what it's about it's so much about inherited trauma so much Mm -hmm. about loss and grief uh, Midsommar especially as essentially a remake of the Wicker Man through the lens of a breakup and it's you know kind of unpleasant to watch in a lot of places but I feel like it is this commitment to style over substance right. in terms of a step from hereditary which you know he had the budget he went and did it he wanted to do it and show that he could direct something that visually compelling I think that's one thing I did like is that most horror movies you know it's like the typical thing is like, oh, it's like this dark house with this attic that you don't know what's there. But like the whole movie is just in broad daylight, and like yeah. it's like terrifying stuff that's still happening. So sounds kind of like Get Out. 
except uh, not towards the end. I think if you like took Get Out, but then took the intensity up like tenfold, that's what. Okay, sounds that's like I won't be watching. That. <laughs> okay, yeah. you're not a horror guy. Absolutely not. <laughs> I, I won't eat, no shame in my game. What, I am not into horror movies. What was the last horror movie you got dragged Insidious. to? Insidious. Insidious? Yes. How did you feel about Insidious? Still thinking about it today. Yeah? Wake up, see all the faces. Red the face screen. demon, yep. that whole thing? No? Totally terrifying. Not your thing? Except the It remake did not scare me that much, as much as the first one did. Mm-hmm. Did, did you watch like the, the 90s thing with... Um, yeah. Or the clown. Yeah. I, I was actually locked in a room and forced to watch it by my friend's older brothers. <laughs> this is not a joke. That's terrifying. Absolutely. How old were you? No. I, no I, now you know I channel the mania, <laughs> man. Now you know I work so much. I can't get it out of my head, dude. One day, the clown will stop chasing you. He goes, One beep, day. beep, Georgie. Beep, beep. That's actually not a bad impression. It's terrifying, but the twist makes no sense at the end that he's a spider. Like, come on, dude. The clown was a spider. spider Stephen alien. King, you're off the sauce, brother. He has always been off the sauce. That's one thing you can count on Stephen King for. Is he off the sauce or on the sauce? Depends what the sauce is. He's on something. He's he's definitely on something. He's I mean you know and he's still whatever he, books out. Whatever he's doing, it seems to be working for him, and so I'm, I'm sure he's going to keep on doing it. He's give, just give me your favorite Stephen King. My non Stephen non popular book or movie either favorite book is the stand which yep. they are i think working on a tv series adaptation of it's like his more um his more post-apocalyptic than horror stuff but it's just this massive tome of a book that i was completely compelled by um in terms of the movies i think the best Stephen king movies are probably the ones that have the least to do with the books that they're based on so like the shining uh stanley kubrick's original mm-hmm. shining is a classic and um, Carrie, the original Carrie is also Carrie's great. terrifying. Carrie's great. I love that movie. What about Cujo? Cujo's great too. Are you, you know, are you I've a dog Cujo. lover? Well, and you, so that kind of yeah. mastered you a bit? Well, I thought it was. Are they Doberman? Is that what Cujo was? Or St. Bernard? St. Bernard. Yeah. Yeah. I had a hard time following the movie, but the book was great. Yeah. It's, yeah. And, you know, it's that, that kind of Stephen King thing of just a normal community where something's just not quite right. In that case, it was the dog. I mean, the other case, there's a clown in the sewer. It's yeah, actually a spider. I mean, yeah. Plot twist. Spoiler alert. I know. It's like four hours of movie that you're just sparing your audiences from, right there. I know. It's terrifying. Okay, so um, the year is wrapping up. So what we discussed on the phone, which I think would be of hashtag values, you give me like your your top three favorite streamed shows of the year. Stream shows. Yes, so, from, from streaming services, not from primetime television. Okay. And mm-hmm. also, after that, I kind of want to talk about your Kendall Roy interview. That was sick, man. Yeah, you're a Succession fan? Uh, yeah, my mom watches it. I've seen bits and pieces, but I had no idea he was from Sudbury. He's from LS. Like, yeah, he literally went to high school where we did. He knew um, Bill and Judy Plot, the drama teachers. Oh, I thought it was John Germanotto. Was it? He, he was in the drama department when we were there and he was i think running it the plots i think predated him a little bit but they still had this kind of lasting influence on on the drama department and the theater department how, at how old is he is uh um jeremy strong yeah 
God, I think he's in his late 40s. Okay, because I was going to say, so him and Chris Evans, like, they probably... They if, didn't. If they were the same year, Chris Evans, like, Captain America went to LS. Mm. So imagine if they were in the same year, they would have made a killer stage production. I mean, what they have in common is those teachers. Uh, the plots, I mean, they worked with both. Um, I mean, they have, a, they have a lot of, you know, kids out in the world doing big things, and Chris Evans and Jeremy Strong are two of them, for sure. Um, well, actually, why don't we get into that right now? So how do you land some of your biggest interviews? How do those happen? Like, did I just see you did a piece with Vanessa Hudgens? I did. That's pretty did. sick. Yeah, it was fun. I, you know, that started as this kind of joke of you should do more coverage of holiday movies from my editor at Fortune who was asking. Uh, he, we, we had gotten an email where she was doing a press day to promote this new Christmas movie on Netflix, which from is cool. From who, your editor? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, at Fortune. And uh, well, that one was pretty straightforward. We just reached out to Netflix. Netflix tries to make talent who are doing its series and its movies available so they can get articles out ahead so that people know that the thing is coming out. Um, and, you know, they called me on a Saturday, and I just talked with Vanessa Hudgens and her co-star for, I think, 15, 20 minutes. And, on the phone? Mm-hmm. Yeah, on the phone. I mean, sometimes it's a little bit more circuitous than that I mean it's not just a straight connection with a press rep sometimes it's like uh, um, sometimes it's like for example John Carpenter I was like going through lots of different reps trying to track down his home phone number and eventually I just found a number called it he picked up and we talked hustling love it I mean, I, I might make like twenty cold calls a day. I do it all the time. Yeah, it's it's fun. I mean, it's a it's a journalistic instinct you probably have from doing this as well. So, what do you traditionally um, well, what have some of your favorite interviews been? That's a great question, uh, and a really difficult question to answer. Uh, I spent a good like two three hours talking with Natalie Dormer, who was um, in Game of Thrones. Uh, she, played, she, play? she played Marjorie uh, Terrell. Oh, that's my girlfriend. Yeah? Oh, I love Lady Marjorie. I, I should have mentioned I knew you. I, What's wrong with you, what man? A, what a mistake. Uh, but no, she was just... Was she as kind in real life as she's in the show? Disarmingly lovely. And that was, wow. you know, that was so memorable. I mean, other than the fact that it's her, because it was um, just her uh in a room and i was like there talking to her in person about two projects that couldn't have been more different there was a movie called in darkness she made with her then fiance anthony byrne it was like a a thriller where she was playing this blind musician who overhears a murder uh and then there was this amazon series that was coming out the same day that was an adaptation of a mystery novel called picnic at hanging rock uh and it sounds like a mystery for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's like these girls on a school trip who go up to this rock while they're out on a picnic with their school and vanish into thin air, and no one can figure out what happened to them. And she plays the the headmistress at the school who's trying to figure out what happened to these girls. And so, you know, these were two very different projects that she was very passionate about. And she was just such a generous interview. Uh, she just answered all of these questions about kind of her career, what it was like working on Game of Thrones and uh, what it was like to be working on these specific series. And, you know, working uh, in covering pop culture, you talk to a lot of big personalities and some people... A lot of ego. Yeah, yeah, a lot of ego, sometimes rightly so. 
and some people make more accommodations for you make more time for you than others and she was just she stood out because she was just such a kind presence so i'd say that was one there's a time when aretha franklin called the globe to connect with the music editor and i was the co-op who picked up the phone and at first didn't believe it was aretha franklin whoa because she wasn't even scheduled for for an interview i was like i was like okay cool aretha franklin I was like, like, you better R-E-S-P-C-T me. (laughs) I was just like, you know, I, of course, you know, it was this, like, this voice on the phone that was, okay, this might be official. So I literally had to, could you hold for a second? And then run around the section being like, are you trying to talk to Aretha Franklin? Are you trying to talk to Aretha Franklin? Because it was just not in any way the the right number. Um, But that was a fond memory of me as a dumb college sophomore, just not knowing what I was doing in the profession pretty funny man okay so give me a give me a free the three streaming right and sorry we got away from that um then i want i want you two to have your yours ready too i think i have not watched a a tv show all the way through this year so let's just be fun um i think that the natasha leone series on netflix russian doll that came out earlier this year is phenomenal uh she is playing this character natasha leone was um nikki on orange is the new black also on netflix (laughs) Uh, but she's playing this woman who keeps reliving the same day over and keeps uh, kind of kind of a Groundhog Day-esque premise. And I don't want to say too much about it because part of the fun of that show is just where it goes. Um, but it's just some of the best written comedy that I've seen uh, this year so far. Okay. Next. Next. Um there's a really hard-hitting drama also on Netflix called Unbelievable um, that is an adaptation of a ProPublica article about um, a young woman who reported a sexual assault and because of the way she was handled by the police who interviewed her eventually recanted the, the accusation um, only for cops in a different district years later to find a different case with very similar circumstances uh, and it, it's just, you know, so much about the importance of believing survivors of assault. And it, it was just an incredibly powerful story. Very harrowing watch, but masterfully directed and acted by a young actress named Caitlin Dever, who was also in Booksmart, which is a comedy that opened earlier this year that more people need to see because it's just a great... Booksmart's um, your third? Uh, Booksmart's a, a movie. Uh, okay. it, but, you know... If you want that to count as my third, Booksmart's on Hulu now, streaming. So, well, no, what, what would your third be? Oh God, um, Succession. Well, Succession isn't exactly streaming because it's on HBO. But but if you're on HBO Go, if you're on HBO Go, if that counts, then absolutely Succession. I think Succession is remarkable. It's this, um, you know, you you talk about a show set within this incredibly privileged bubble of a rich kind of Murdoch-esque family. And just family and, members turning on each other. And the last thing you think that would be would be a comedy. But it is. And it's a hilarious, incredibly biting, dark satire of wealth and privilege and what these, um, these people who have this immense power through virtue of their money and upbringing... Uh, just how dysfunctional they are. It's essentially arrested development without the punchlines and voiceover, and it's fantastic. And the recurring inside jokes. And the recurring inside jokes. Though there are those too. But not 
Arrested Development's masterful with that. I think you should watch more Succession. I know you said you'd started it, but I've seen bits that... and pieces. I, I saw the end of season two, so I know where it's I know what happened, which is curveball. Yeah. Nonetheless, all right, you two, let's do it. Sarah. Um, my favorite stream show is definitely Mind Hunter on Netflix. Do you guys know it? Yeah, I heard that's a big hit. It is. It's like, have you seen it? Mm-mm. Okay, so it's about like. Don't a... spoiler alert. I won't. I won't. Okay. But it's about this guy who's trying to develop um it takes place in the 70s i think and so it's about a guy who's trying to develop um the psycho analytic part of like how does a serial killer's mind work and so he has interviews with like a bunch of real life like if you look them up they like, are like actually, Ted Bundy. exactly exactly like ed kemper um, and if you look it up, they do a really Stand good up guys. <laughs> they do a really good <laughs> job of making them look just like how they looked in real life, and it's, it's a good it's a good show. And I think the second season's even better than the first. Which Mindhunter Netflix, fresh. Um, I don't know. I I I liked Handmaid's Tale. I got into it pretty late, but I just um, finished catching up. But Mm-hmm. I also think the Watchmen series on HBO is pretty good. It's only like four episodes in right now, but the Watchmen pretty... series. Yeah, yeah. Have you seen like the Watchmen movie? It's like a the superhero that's very gritty and dark. The big blue guy. Yeah. You talking about like the genie from Aladdin? Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, this is a couple. Years, this is like what 2012, 2010. When it came uh, yeah, out? yeah. Maybe it was, even um, Zack Snyder who directed. He he would go on to direct Man of Steel and Batman versus Superman and those okay. DC movies. It but, was like it was yeah. marketed as that um, the yellow smiley face with like a bullet hole like bleeding down. Like you must have seen it somewhere. I don't know. Maybe it, it may have passed us by. <laughs> I mean, I mean, this happened. I think Watchmen was two thousand nine, so that would have been when we were in high school right. or even yeah. even Eighth middle grade. school. Yeah, even teen center. Yeah, we were probably oh, slow dancing with chicks. <laughs> Maybe you were. Oh, yeah, my fault. <laughs> I, no one's asked me yet the big question, which is how was Connor in high school? Which Someone is, ask uh, it. How was Connor in high school? You know, Connor was the class clown. I remember I this. You were, you know, you were just, um, you always had a laugh. You always had a joke. Um, and I just have so many memories of you never standing still. I just still I, have ADHD to the day, man. I remember just you bouncing around the library, antagonizing <laughs> the librarians, uh, not intentionally, usually, but it was no, just definitely um, a lot of that. What class do we have together? Mr. Cobbett, maybe? Oh, yeah. Who Mr. Did you, Cobbett who, for law? Yeah, for law junior yeah. year. I, yeah, I, th- I think that must have been it. Um, I'm trying to remember because I don't really have any memories of you in that class, but we definitely had classes together. For Did sure. Well, I remember you writing for the forum. Yeah. I remember it was okay. Isaac's going to be a writer one day. I knew that. Yeah, the forum was, you know, that was a, a great set of trading wheels as well, high school newspaper. I remember we had... Um, you had deadlines you had to hit. Yeah, well, we had that, the graffiti in the bathrooms, I remember, was the major oh, yeah. story while we were there. What about the kids boozing for the Friday night football games? Oh, I stayed away from that. I, you know, had a vested interest in not reporting yeah, that. Yeah, I was going to say, you don't want to snitch. <laughs> That'd be bad. Um, okay, cool. So, give me your your number one movie. Number one movie of the year. Yes. I, you know, I go back and forth. And can you do a, a fan of... favor for this one? Because listen, you're a really smart guy. You're very eloquent. But give me like a a blockbuster for this one that everybody would see. That it's not like a a crossword puzzle when they see it on screen. 
Yeah, I, well, I mean, I wouldn't say that the films I would say are that usually, but in terms of, you know, movies that were given like a big studio release, I think Crawl, which is um, essentially, it's set in Florida. It's this woman trying to survive this house during a hurricane that is flooding and flooding with alligators. Uh, nice. It is. Now we're on the same speed, Isaac. Okay. So, I, well, Crawl is fucking blast of a movie i I love that movie so much it came out at the beginning of the summer i believe in june and uh is just this very kind of intense economical thriller that is you know uh ks godelario is the main actress in it she was on skins if you ever watched skins she was in the meatstrons movies i've done a really bad job seeing stuff this year no it's okay um, but you should see Crawl. I would say everyone should should see Crawl. I also think it's Quentin Tarantino's favorite favorite movie of the year. Um, and you like? Did you like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Oh, I loved it. Yeah, I loved it. That movie was just such a a beautiful kind of dream to to live inside of. For... Tarantino in your face. Tarantino in your face. Yeah, I mean that whole movie was just you know for people who've loved his movies and kind of growing up with them, it was just this love letter to, to movie making that I was so glad he made and had, he, he you know, does it. Leo and Brad, like what the a, goats. what a great star power combo to have. The, um, the best Tarantino shot ever. I'm going to give a little spoiler here, but it's at the end of kill bill part one. And Uma Thurman just kills Lucy Liu in the Shaolin showdown mm. and, in the garden. Yes. Yeah. And she stabs her, right? And Tarantino never shows the blade going into the skin, but he cuts to a B-roll shot of a fountain that's regulated. That's just all you can hear is just liquid, but you can't see the blood. And it's just genius, genius directing. You're like, oh, he's good at that. I mean, if you've seen Reservoir Dogs, it, he there's you know this scene that's kind of become infamous of someone's ear being cut off. And there's so many people you'll talk to about that scene who will vividly remember how much they were disturbed by seeing an ear get cut off. You never actually see it happen on the screen, but it's such an intense effect. Uh, and he cuts so well around it that you feel like you've seen something really gross, even though you really haven't. Like, you know, another shot from him that's like so standout is in Django when the blood gets on a cotton. Mm -hmm. You know that? When he, Very loaded image. Yeah, when Jamie Foxx is just like, where Django's just mowing down everybody on the plantation, and he just snipes someone from deep, and they never show the bullet hitting, but they show blood actually just splattering on the cotton. It's just like very vivid imagery. Slave Wait, which um, yeah. which Kill Bill movie was it when um, Uma Thurman was in that coffin buried alive? Both. It was in both of them? Yeah. I don't know Except which one. The start I, of one and the start of two. I think okay, yeah. Um, I think it might have been the start of two because that scene, like, I watched Kibbo like very young, like I mm -hmm. don't know when it came out. I was probably like nine, ten, maybe. But um, that scene like haunted me like for a while. Like you I was having nightmares. About it. No, no, not at all. I feel you. I don't either. <laughs> yeah. Well, you were watching Kill Bill. I was stuck in the room watching it. <laughs> well, so Connor, what's your number one movie of the year? It's a great question. I'll tell you something I saw recently, which I really liked, was Kingsman 2, The Golden Circle. I really enjoyed the CGI in it. Mm -hmm. I really think that dude's an awesome actor. I also loved the new Spider-Man. Mm -hmm. I thought it was like such smart writing to make it contemporary for kids. 
you know, it had like the whole social media tie-in, the simulation yeah. tie-in. I thought it was really clever, and I thought it was totally original too. And I thought Zendaya did a really good job just being this like cute, quirky, weird girl. Yeah, yeah, she's a tremendous actress. Yeah, have as you well. seen Euphoria? Yeah, yeah, I have. Did you see I haven't Euphoria seen it, as well? Was it good? Euphoria. I mean, I feel like everyone gets the kind of like you know, at Reefer Madness kind of movie about like how dangerous it is, how dangerous it is to be a kid. Like every generation gets one of those and Euphoria is that kind of thing. Where, what you know, was our generation? I mean, I think Euphoria kind of uh, is, you know, Hollywood trying to capture what it was like for us kind of growing up, going through high school. Uh, oh, Project X was like the Euphoria before Euphoria? Project X, Project X, wow, that's a deep cut. I completely forgot about that movie. But I watched it alone. Yeah? Did you watch it with somebody? I think I did. I think I watched that with like Doug Hoinstein. Shout out to Doug. Shout out to Doug. I needed to do it at least once. Shout out to Jonah and shout out to Kev, too. Yeah, if they're listening somewhere out there. I'll send it to them. Yeah, why not? I mean, yeah, Project X was just this very kind of a riff on the found footage craze. They kind of did that as a house party, which is kind of a fun technical feat to do. Um, I remember that being a super fun movie. Euphoria is more, um, you know, about like the impossibly heightened drama of its teenage characters. I mean, they're all hooked on something. They're all having this like crazy, crazy, dangerous sex. And like all of them are just in constant peril. And there's a glamour to that, that the series really plays up that I think sometimes gets reflected by social media and Instagram and the glitz and the glamour and that kind of that feeling of wanting to explore the darker side of what it's like to live your life in an age where everything is up for presentation and everything is on social media and recorded. Yeah. I remember, did you see project X? Yeah. That movie was sick, but I saw it alone after a high school dance and I just seen the girl that I liked grinding with another dude and I went home alone it was like the first time I ever drank and I was just like this is was this high school's hard man what dance was this I think it was a purple rave oh my god <laughs> it was like a dance devoted to like raising funds for the walk for or what what did they used to uh, what was that rally called they would do at Curtis rally for life rally for life wasn't yeah. that what the purple rave was for it was for money for might have been for the was that American cross no, I, like, I, I can't remember the Purple Rave. These kids or, were getting drunk for, like, philanthropist activities. <laughs> kids were crazy out there in the sticks, man. Jamaica jamming. Jamaica jamming. Uh, nonetheless, man, I had, a, I had a great time. Did you have fun? Yeah, yeah this was great. Damn, Thank that, you for having me on. That's that corporate shake, Isaac. So listen, this is how we start and end the episode. Do you guys have anything? Sarah, do you have fun? Mm-hmm. Nice. Big Fresh, you have fun? Hell yeah. Dope. So this is how we start and end the episode. You say hi your name and this is my golden hour directly after no break hi your name and that was my golden hour okay and wait before you say anything we've been like five for five and guests recently so don't blow it whatever you're on you got the pressure on. on me now yeah you're good to go man Hi, my name is Isaac Feldberg, and this is my golden hour. Hi, my name is Isaac Feldberg, and this was my golden hour. Oh, Isaac, you blew it. One more time. This is, it's, it's pretty funny. We've run now 150 episodes, close to it. 
probably about 4% of people get it right. So okay. we fuck with everybody at the end. Hi, this is my golden hour. I'm Isaac Goldberg. This is, then hi, I'm Isaac Goldberg. That was, that was. Oh, I see. I see. A little language for the journalist. So you're like, is it like a mirror? Is that what you're doing? No. So we have, because we cut up a piece for the start of the episode and mm-hmm. a piece for the end of the episode. So it's, hi, this is my golden hour. Then hi, I'm Isaac Goldberg. That was my golden hour. Okay. You just said this was instead of that was. Right. <laughs> now you just need, we should just start over. Oh no, we keep it running. We always do this. Okay. Whenever you're ready. ready. Yeah. Hi, my name is Isaac Feldberg, and this is my golden hour. Hi, my name is Isaac Feldberg, and that was my golden hour. Well executed. <laughs> Whenever you're ready, big fresh. Dude, everyone get.